Hello, I'm Huron Zani and welcome to Brandenburg One. Thank you for joining me today for more Baroque Now. As always, I'm joined by one of the inspiring musicians and artists bringing Baroque music to life with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. Today I'm joined by principal second Baroque violin Ben Dolman, who has recorded a fabulous uh, series of four movements, two from the Partita No. 1 in B minor, the Sarabande en Double, and then two from the Sonata No. 3 in C major, the Largo and Allegro Assai for the Bach series. Ben, lovely to have you with me today. Thanks very much, you. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, isn't it nice to be able to share, uh, I suppose, a bit of uh, time at the, at the microphone, given the, the f- infrequent visits you've had from Adelaide since, uh, since March last year? Yeah, that's right. It is it's really nice to be back here in Sydney. So we're doing this, um, you and I are speaking live over one desk rather than over Zoom. And yeah, I've had a, a year away from Brandenburg, more or less, which has uh, been... You know, a mixed blessing, let's say. So, yeah. yeah. And especially uh, today with you, Ben, I was wanting to talk about ornamentation and and the expressive techniques that you as violinists use uh, to create that Baroque sound that we all have heard and and know and love from the Brandenburg. Perhaps you can start by talking to us a little bit about the techniques that you and your colleagues um, use when performing uh, the violin. Mm. Yeah, well, it... uh, it's one of the things, I guess, that drew me to playing Baroque instruments in the first place was there is quite a lot of freedom in how you um, end up performing the music. So ornamentation is one aspect of that. Uh, and and what it rests on really is is understanding the music as a language to begin with. So that uh, Baroque music was an evolving language. So let's say from the 1600s through to the 1700s, where it was constantly being developed by composers and performers alike. Often a composer and performer were the same person. Mm. But uh, it's, there's a, a language that you can start to learn by delving into particularly 17th century music. And then you start to understand what composers were saying with that as time went on. So uh, that was uh, a bit of an eye-opening experience when I first came to this music and from there, understanding that language, sort of assimilate, assimilating it, um, bring it into your in, into your blood in a way, then it gives you the tools uh, to to be able to speak freely in it. So whether you're playing music that's written down, or whether you're improvising or adding ornamentation to a score, then you have a vocabulary, in you, if you like. To, to draw on um, and it's one that's informed by all, all the music you've learnt, all the, the structures of the music you've learnt and uh, then, you know, filtered through your own feeling for the music. Are there particular composers or violinists that spring to your mind when you use this word ornamentation and maybe, you know, a, a few uh, examples that you can point our audience towards? Yeah, sure. So, again, going back to the 17th century, uh, in the, in fact, right through the 17th century, in Venice in particular, there was a great school of composition, uh, particularly around the San Marco uh, Cathedral there. Um, Many um, performers were experimenting with writing their own music and they were starting to write things down in 
quite uh, fantastical, if you like, compositions, sonatas, and and just by learning those pieces, you start to develop a feeling and a, a a taste for the language that they were speaking at the time. It's you know perhaps not so different from learning seventeenth century Italian that you would you're learning how those people really expressed in that language. So composers like Marini, uh, Dario Castello, uh, Giovanni Battista Fontana uh, left volumes of works that uh, that you that one can learn and draw on and and understand the beginnings of that language. And then that flowed through to places People like Corelli and Vivaldi, yes. and so on, and and then obviously the flow-on effect after Vivaldi to to, to Bach and yes. what what he inherited, mm. um, essentially and learnt from. Um, now we we have spoken previously on this podcast a little bit about how Bach got access to Vivaldi's music. Uh, Paul Dyer, in fact, was telling us that that story and that he'd studied these scores quite intently. Mm. Um, what sort of things do you learn from studying these scores? Are there particular um, words associated? to the ornamentation? Uh, yeah, so coming out of that 17th century tradition, uh, we use the term divisions to, to, uh, to describe a way of ornamenting on maybe a simple theme or a series of notes. So what they meant by divisions is very literal that you're dividing a note, let's say a, a crotchet or a minimum, so something that might just last a second or a bit more of the second into smaller fragments. So instead mm-hmm. of something going ta, ta, you're learning to go ta, 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 ta. So to fill in those bigger notes with smaller notes mm. and make an interesting phrase out of that. Or it might, you know, might go into much more detail than that where you're adding very small notes, ta, 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 to make something interesting out of or more florid, if yes. you like, out of something that is very simple on the page. Yes. So, so divisions is sort of like a catch-all term to talk about the the more subtle uh, uh, ornamentation that goes on in and around the major notes of the melody. Yeah, that's right. So one one learns that, I guess, as a student of music through treatises and through examples in compositions. And then... You, you see that that's what the composers themselves are doing. So later in the Brock, you know, if you're learning the music of Bach or of Handel or of Telemann, that, uh, you know, as they develop a phrase or a musical idea, it's, re- you know, they're writing it down, but they're going through the same process essentially. Yes. Yeah. So you're seeing their mind at work in creating those those divisions, that sort of um, uh, that improvisatory approach but then it's written down as well so you get to see these great minds at work yes. uh, in that process and to borrow a modern stereotype of course how germanic you know yes <laughs> be extremely pre- precise with the exact intention and how to get from note a to note b um you know it's it's very barkian isn't it? it it is and and the germans were great at that we can we do learn a lot from bark in particular because he was very particular about writing things down, very meticulous. And from what I understand, he preferred people to use what he wrote rather than put their own, own ornamentation in. Uh, you know, a great example of that, I, I was staggered when I first learnt uh, Brandenburg's Fifth Concerto, which I had the pleasure of performing with Paul Dyer and the orchestra in 2019. Uh, you know, he wrote this enormous harpsichord, Cazenza, in the first music movement, uh, which is very famous. 
and uh, to somebody who only has a, you know, a, uh, let's say maybe a more surface understanding of Brock music, you hear some of the, what he wrote and you think that's not Brock, you know, but clearly it was, you know, yes. this is what they were doing. And, <laughs> and you hear his mind at work as it goes into these cascades of, you know, crazy harmonies and, and um, scales and, you know, it's, it's much more like some, you know, contemporary jazz improvisation. Yes. I mean, not the same language again, but in its own language, it, it has that degree of being sort of wild and and experimental. Uh, so, you know, it gives us a great insight into the spirit of the time. Mm. And um, this is exactly what I like to relay to our audiences is it, this is how we learn essentially the Baroque language. And we always come uh, with essentially there are always surprises waiting for us around another corner because another composer or another particular work of a composer that's well known may be unearthed and then we can discover another part of their, their thinking. And with Bach, obviously, we have a lot of research and study into his music. Music. We we can see a lot of what he wrote and what he's left as his uh, musical legacy. It's right there on on the page. Exactly what you're talking about: cascading and difficult harmonic uh, turns that that <laughs> so mm. unexpected. Mm. But yet, that's clearly what he was thinking about and doing mm. uh, in his own performance practices. So, coming back to your performance practice now, and uh, as a as a violin player, uh, sometimes I get lost with what you're doing because uh, there's so much ornamentation. Not necessarily you personally, uh, Ben, but violinists in recordings that I've listened to. Mm. It can be hard to follow a facsimile score um, with the number of notes and divisions coming in between, let's say, you know, this crotchet and and, and that crotchet. Um, is there is there uh, a reason for this sort of ex, uh, you know excessive ornamentation, or is there a, a, a particular period of the Baroque where that was more prevalent? Yeah, it it was uh, it developed a lot after or during the music of Corelli and afterwards. So Corelli's sonatas were uh, widely dispersed through Europe and one of the, again, really interesting examples we have to draw on is ornamentation that's uh, by him himself over his own manuscripts and uh, by other contemporaries or people who came later. So even, uh, you know, maybe 100 years down the track, um, there's a great example of... uh, a sonata, one of his sonatas with um, improvisation by a Scottish violinist. Uh, so, you know, there you're getting to see somebody from a different part of Europe uh, bringing their own flavour to it. So, again, it shows, again, the spirit of the time, which was that the music on the page was one thing and then but the other half of the equation was what a performer would bring to it mm. and that there was a lot of freedom there and our job as performers is to to really bring that expression through to an audience so that uh, we're not playing a static uh, composition off a page, but the whole experience is one of uh, bringing that alive and uh, communicating emotion or affect, the word we often use uh, in in our trade, uh, to, to literally affect people, to affect their emotions, to, mm. to convince them, to cajole them, to, 
to persuade them of 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 what we are saying mm. with this language of the the emotion that we're trying to bring up um, through our musical performance. Yes, and. It, You've been involved in many Brandenburg projects with your long tenure yeah, with the orchestra. Um, is there a particular project that you have in mind where where that precisely was what was being called for in terms of um, your your performance? Through Brandenburg, we've had the opportunity to do all kinds of things, which is something I valued very much through the orchestra and through Paul's approach. He's he's quite experimental, and he's brought a lot of given us a lot of freedom as performers. Uh, a nice example that springs to mind from recent years is we had a uh, wonderful German recorder player, Maurice Steger, come uh, in 2016. Uh, and his, yeah, his ornamentation, just for, for one example, is is uh, quite extraordinary how, how he you know, improvises on his instrument. Uh, the sort of stream of notes that pour out and mm. uh, that was quite inspiring and in fact during that program uh, we also performed uh, a piece, uh, just a chaconna by a, a little known Austrian composer uh, by the name of Rittler and although Maurice didn't play in this piece, uh, Paul developed it as a, a kind of forum for, our, for the, other, the other musicians to improvise on which was a really lovely experience. So, uh, yeah, it was just, just something that sprung to mind as, as something we got to, to play with in a way. So I wouldn't call it strict uh, historical performance practice, but everybody brought to it uh, their background knowledge of that language. Yes. And then how do we create beautiful music, you know, in this context now? So, you know, maybe it might sound... You know, at times it might have sounded a little more contemporary, or uh, but uh, yeah, a really nice example of of that kind of freedom mm. that we can bring to our music making now as performers. Yes, perhaps I can take us back to the City Recital Hall in in March two thousand and sixteen with uh, Morris Steger not performing actually in this particular piece, but rather Paul Dyer, Ben Dolman, and the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. Ritler's Chicona Sette from Recorder Revolutionary in two thousand and sixteen. As that gets going, Ben, mm. um, of course, as with many lovely Baroque performances, we start with a bass line. Yes. Yeah. And this is the Chagona bass, or just a very simple harmonic progression, which later forms the, the basis of the composition. Uh, in this introduction, we're just hearing some improvisation, extemporization, if you like, from different musicians. I would think that's Anthea playing the cello there. And Tommy on guitar, Rob on bass. Uh, you'll hear Paul come in, a few sounds from Brian on percussion, and uh, a violin solo coming up that uh, is myself. Uh, yeah, so very nice little space to be to to be playing in. 
Now, in terms of live performance, you're obviously there talking and communicating this language together and sharing the experience. What sort of things are you thinking about um, during during these sorts of moments on stage? Mm. Yeah, trying to not think very much at all, really. So it's it's about um, absorbing what's going on around you, particularly when you're improvising. Uh, you have your background understanding of of the form that you're using, the harmony, but it's again, it's a great forum where you know, you can let that language speak through you. And what we're hearing is again, yeah, it's not strictly baroque, but it, um, uh, it it's in everybody's background. It's it's you know sort of. Uh, on everybody's tongue, if you like. So, and it's in the spirit, as you were saying, the spirit of Baroque performance. I think so. I mean, but some people might disagree. But um, we're here now to perform for people now, and and that that's at its root. That's that's the most important thing. some lovely violin playing Ben congratulations <laughs> thanks so did you have any music in front of you for the for this particular piece not for this introduction no so in a moment you'll hear the trumpets begin and that's where the written score begins yes yeah. it's fascinating to me how um, and often this happens in uh, Brandenburg concerts we have these improvisational uh, segues between even one piece mm. and another piece and it it turns the concert into a much more holistic experience I think yeah absolutely I uh, there is a different space that that's created I think when you're playing away from the page of the music and uh, whether that's by memory or through improvisation. Uh, so it's really nice to transport people into, into that, even just for some of the concert. And that was Paul Dyer, Ben Dolman, and the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra live at the City Recital Hall in 2016. 
Now, Ben, we've hinted at the dynamics, the social dynamics on stage where we have obviously um, several musicians sharing a performance. Mm. Um, orchestras tend to be very hierarchical, don't they? Uh, perhaps you could explain to our audience where you fit into the orchestra and what your role is on stage. Mm. Yeah, so... Uh, yeah, there's times to be free and there's times to be disciplined. So, <laughs> so generally speaking, uh, my role on stage is uh, as a leader of a section, but in particular uh, we have the second violins and obviously the first violins. So uh, concert master leading the first violins, uh, my role is a principal leading seconds and violas and cellos and so forth. So... Uh, you know, it's it's a very interesting role, my mind, because I uh, have to do many things kind of at once. So on one hand, you're being receptive to the, the requests or um, if you like the demands of the of Paul, of the artistic director, of the concert master, what they would like. And as a player, you, you have to fit in seamlessly uh, with the concert master, with the first violins when you're playing together or sort of in harmony. At other times you have a more independent role. So you might, the section might have a very independent voice um, through a different uh, part of the m uh, music. Mm. You may take the the upper line for a while. Yes. Uh, the melody. Uh, and there may even be solos for, for my part. Again, either with the concert master or on, on its own. So you have to be sort of very much on your toes to, to play, um, to put different hats on, uh, on the spur of, of the moment. So, if, you know, from one moment in the music to the next, to change your role, yes. to change the sort of the dynamic of what you're doing. Not, I don't mean dynamic just in terms of volume, but the, the, the spirit of what you're doing. One, you know, one moment you're leading or, um, very active the other mo moment you have to be more receptive mm. and tune in uh, sort of intimately with with other people in the group. A prime example, um, as you're talking about uh, the dynamics of the group, a prime example that springs to my mind is almost any concerto grosso where we have essentially a concertino, a small group of soloists playing together and working actively together, um, often sharing melodic material or the, mm. the melodic line. And uh, then the ripiano, uh, where you have the rest of the orchestra essentially responding and or setting up thematic material for then the concertino to, to elaborate on. And uh, the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra recorded the complete orchestra uh, uh, concerto Grossi uh, Opus Number Six uh, by Handel. That's twelve yes. concerto gro <laughs> concerto grossos. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that project and has uh, a leader of the second violins. Um, what that entailed? Mm, yeah, I mean that was a, a big project for us and relatively early in my um, tenure, if you like, in the role. Um, so that was working with uh, our previous concertmaster Lucinda Moon, who you know was. Um, is a wonderful violinist and was my teacher as well. Uh, so, yeah, it was quite a privileged experience to be part of that. Uh, and it took place over many years. In fact, over two or three years, uh, we'd perform a concerto and then record it and then, you know, move on to another one. Or sometimes we'd do two in one concert program and then aim to record them during the concert season or, or afterwards in the studio. 
so yeah, many of those aspects at work there. So you know, working on solar parts with Lucinda, uh, working on the sound of a section of your section from one occasion to another. Sometimes we'd have different people coming in and out of the orchestra, mm. which you know, um, you know, just meant that uh, it wasn't always a stable group from time to time. Uh, so, I guess in my role, again, you had to sort of be on on top of all those things and you know manage different people and and bring people together in a kind of harmonious way, so that uh, especially when you're recording, then you know you really have to be kind of uh on on the money to to produce a certain kind of sound and a kind of unanimity of sound if you like yes which i think you know we really got to in that that series of recordings when i listen back to them now you know i'm often really pleasantly surprised about how um how well they come across yes. and and i remember paul really looking paul and lucinda at the time really looking to find our own language or our, our own style, if you like, with that music, which I think, uh, you know, we we did manage to do. Yes. No, I, I completely agree about the the language that you've developed in this recording. So the, the album is called Handel, Concerti Grossi, Opus 6, released in 2009. But as you say, it took several years to to come to this, uh, this album. Do you remember in what year you started the project? Yeah, I, I would probably... I'm I'm sure that we started in 2006 at least. Yeah. Yes. So probably over the course of two years we recorded them and then, of course, the production process takes quite a while as well. Yes. Um, for the engineer, that was um, Virginia Reid, to, to put all that music together. Yes. Um, and, and edit things and uh, create a, you know, that's, you know, a you know, big part of the, if you like the the process, they're an equal partner as well as uh, the musicians these days. When you go into the studio recording, you have to have a fine engineer. So, uh, for all of that to come into line for a, a big set of works like that takes quite a while. Yes, and out of the uh, out of the twelve concerti grossi, uh, one of my favourites is the first one that's actually on the first album, number twelve in B minor. And we were talking about those different roles that you've uh, played within these specific works, uh, as well as others. But uh, as a soloist working with Lucinda Moon, um, you have a sort of dialogue in the Allegro, the second movement from that particular concerto, don't you? Mm, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a very fun concerto. Um uh, sort of has quite a serious character in a way. So the key B minor, um, yeah, has a sort of gravitas to it. The allegro is is very dynamic movement. So uh, we're we're playing, you know, sort of uh, chasing each other in our lines and then coming together at times. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. Let's have a listen to that. This is the Allegro featuring Lucinda Moon, Ben Dolman, Jamie Hay and Paul Dyer and the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. Thank you. 
there's so much excitement in this recording, mm. isn't there, Ben? Yeah, there is. And again, I think that's you know something that we really did capture, and and you know, in large part, due to Paul's inspiration at the time, that always seeking to to bring that into the music making. So it's it's never stayed. It's it's always communicating, you know, a vibrancy or a, a depth of character. You know, yeah, never ordinary. And I think it's a testament, actually, to the music itself. Handel uh, was a master of drama. Yes. And and this was one of his masterworks, essentially. The the Concerti Grossi Opus 6 is a fantastic example of the form. Mm. Um, very much so fashioned on some of the Corelli uh, Opus 6 that we, we've heard um, earlier this year. Yeah, that's right. That's where Handel took his inspiration. And as a, you know mature composer working in London at the time these were written you know he really had a you know a sort of whole arsenal of um, experience and techniques at his disposal to, to put these into practice Now, in terms of your role then as the leader of the Violin Two section, um, is there another movement from that partic- that same Concerto Grosso that maybe we could listen to and, and hear how the different dynamic uh, works? Yeah, well, so the last movement uh, is is like a fugue, a fugato, so without without solo roles, but the sections themselves have their own voice and come in uh, one after the other uh, with answering phrases or repeating the theme uh, and again a really good example of how we might choose to speak the same language as a group but uh, with different voices between the sections. Mm. So this is the fifth movement, the Allegro, from Concerto Number 12 from Handel's Opus 6 in B minor. We can really hear that fugal writing at play here. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great example. And, and so a bit of Handel's Germanic background coming through there. Uh, but, you know, starts to change down to, you know, a sort of a fun and bouncy kind of character in there as well, which is never far away in Handel's music. The call and response uh, here between the violin ones and the violin twos is obviously uh, indicative of the of the form. Um, what do you think about on stage when you're bouncing like this uh, between the two sections? Uh, are there particular are there particular considerations for what's happening on stage? You really have to be on your toes. So yes, we have different voices, but as the listener can hear, it's very much in rhythmic unison. So you have, have to be saying your own thing, but at the same time as somebody else is saying their thing. 
So it, it, it uh, very much, uh, yeah, you need to be, uh, yeah, sort of quicksilver in your, in your sort of response and, and uh, in, in your actions. It doesn't feel like there's much room for error in that sort of movement, Not is there? really, no. <laughs> yeah. So uh, another uh, part of, obviously, your performing career is as a soloist, Ben. And perhaps I'd like to take us now to your performance in the Bach series and the several uh, movements that you've uh, performed. You chose two movements from the Partita Number no. 1 in B minor, the Sarabande and Double, and then you also chose two min- movements from the Sonata Number no. 3 in C major, the Largo and Allegro Assai. As a soloist, um, was there a reason uh, for for this choice? Uh, what were you thinking about, and and what drew you to these particular uh, parts of this collection of sonatas and partitas that Bach left us? Mm, yeah, there's a few reasons why I chose these. One, it, yeah, is is just knowing them well and really loving the music. So both of them contain very beautiful music, particularly in the the slower movements. So the Largo of the C major and the Sarabande of the B minor, uh, they really speak volumes of emotion and and that's something then that we can communicate to the listener. There are also movements which are on that level very accessible out of out of these that bigger scope of Bach's solo um, oeuvre, if you like, so all of his works for solo violin. Some of them are highly complex and, and quite long, um, difficult to perform, sometimes difficult to listen to in one sitting. So mm. chosen movements for this series that, uh, you know, I think could, you know, come across really well and, and communicate through the medium uh, of, of the video uh, really effectively. As we've sort of hinted at earlier as well, this is a very different time we live in now and the expectations of the listener are, of course, completely different to what they would have been at the time Bach was writing this collection of works for solo violin. Perhaps uh, you can tell us a little bit about how you approached them then. What sort of considerations did you have? You've mentioned the constraints of the video recording. Mm. Um, what was involved? Uh, yeah, it's uh, what we were aiming for in these recordings was, if you like, a, a live, the sense of a live recording. So these aren't studio recordings that have been, you know, edited and put put together uh, in different ways. We, you know, I maybe had the chance to perform each movement twice uh, from beginning to end, and that was it. So uh, when I'm approaching the the music from that sense, again, it's uh, using the fact that it's a video as well to to bring in the whole sense of a performance. So that's not just the oral, so the sound that you might record, you know, if you were making a CD or an album, but it's also how you present on a stage, how you use your body. Uh, when I perform on stage, and this is another big part of my understanding of, of Baroque music, is that uh, we're performing, we're transmitting the music and the emotion, the affect of that music through our body language as well. And Baroque music draws um, as well. We talked about the language of Baroque music. A big part of that is it, is it rests uh, on the tradition of dance as well. So mm. uh, how you feel the rhythm and the pulse of the music through your, your body 
Uh, you feel the meter, that's, that is to say when there's a, a strong beat and a weaker beat uh, so that uh, when you performing particularly a specifically a dance movement like a sarabonde, uh, that that is communicated in, in your whole presence. Yes, and we can see that. I mean, I, I've seen that many times with you uh, as a performer on stage. I've had the privilege of watching you uh, many times in the concert hall. And, uh, and it's just fascinating to see how you react and how your colleagues react with this music um, coming out of your instruments, um, you're obviously uh, giving us uh, a beautiful sound, but also a beautiful performance, and mm. it's a very visceral thing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that's part of our role, and it's something that is special about Baroque or early music performance, uh, that we're drawing on a time when most of the the people who are writing or performing were trained composers, they were trained on their instrument, they were trained dancers, they were also um, often trained in fencing and swordsmanship. So a whole range of things that went into this uh, sense of, uh, if you like, sort of deportment, how you carried yourself, how you um, portrayed and then, uh, yeah, music through an instrument. All of these things were interrelated and one of the great things I think that we have to bring to contemporary stages is that we are not just instrumentalists uh, performing, you know, a, a modern instrument. We've got a music stand in front of us and we sit on a chair and we do our job and we play this, the notes, but we, um, we can expand our role, drawing inspiration from historical practice that we are there to communicate with our whole, with our whole body, with um, this sense of um, of these uh, more physical elements of performance that mm. uh, maybe sometimes in a, a contemporary training have have been overlooked, we can go back and say, "Oh no, no, hang on, these things are there." And as a singer, or perhaps, or as an actor, you get trained in these things. Uh, where I think. Um, early music is, is somewhat progressive is that we can bring these things to our role as a violinist or as a, a cellist or, um, yeah. So Yes, and it's easy to draw the analogies um, because when we look at the actual, the books and the works that have been left to us and that we still have from the Baroque period, uh, we have all these treatises, not just on music, but music and dance together. Mm. And, and there are so many uh, volumes of uh, essentially what was the popular music of the time where dancing masters may have, you know, penned or, or borrowed melodies from a particular folk tune that was popular at the time and then provided dancing instructions, and we can imagine them having also put those pra things into practice themselves. Yeah, that's right. They were very much how-to manuals, uh, and they were there for, you know, for the public to draw on. And uh, again, also then those people were then, we talked about the practice of writing divisions, they were often then writing out divisions for, you know, improvisation on tunes, that people would also have, have known in dance forms. So yes. it gives us a real window into how the musical life of a culture, you know, so it's not something that's academic or something state. It's like, oh, here's, here's what people were doing and they were doing that for fun because, you know, they liked it and this is what happened at a party or at a, you know, 
fair and the village green or, you know, yes. um, is very much alive, you know, so it's, um, uh, it's not an abstract compositional world. It's, it's, a, it's a real cultural um, kind of a window into a living culture. Yes, you know, yeah. and and if I suppose I could say something about uh, about maybe my reticence uh, on the topic, it's maybe the the over academization of Bach's music that turned me away as a younger listener. Mm. You know, I wasn't as interested in Bach's music when I was younger, and even actually quite as as a young adult still, because mm. I. Th- I thought or I had heard recordings maybe that, that it, perhaps too academic a, an approach to the the topic. Uh, you know, he was a man that was clearly very emotional. The yes. things he was writing about um, don't get we well, don't get much more profound than that. No, uh, it's life, it's death, it's it's everything in between. Mm. And uh, and the approach that you and the Brandenburg uh, you know tends to take to this music, I think, is a breath of fresh air in a way. Yeah, yeah. it is. And again. It, it's part of the groundswell of, you know, understanding of this music that's happened over the past 30 years. Uh, you know, when I was learning modern violin, again, I had some somewhat of the same approach that you described to, to Bach's music. You know, I, I liked it, but I didn't perhaps understand it with the same, uh, yeah, the same sort of background knowledge or mm. understanding of, of what it meant, you know, in his life, in that culture, you know. Yes. So that's that's where we can go with that now. And um, as you say, you know, he he was a passionate, deeply spiritual person. And with that historical knowledge, we can start to sort of draw these things out and and mm. and try and find our own way to express that now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it is important for performers uh, to find their own way to express those emotions because sometimes we can, as musicologists or you know people writing about music, mm. uh, we can go one assertion too far and, and sort of put words into Bach's mouth, as it were, yeah. that may not have been there. Well, I mean, we simply don't know mm. um, exactly what his music sounded like when he played it. But mm. if, as a performer, you are informed and you, you bring your own um, essential... Uh, your own emotional uh, uh, approach to the, to that music with the technical ability that you have to have to perform it, mm. um, you know, it, it really can provide at least a window uh, to that sort of that sort of way of thinking. Yeah, that's right. And once again, I you know, in my opinion, that is historical performance practice. Yes, that, that at the time that was the understood approach. You know, some composers may have been more dogmatic in how their music was performed. Again, we don't really know. But the general understanding was that, you know, the performer had a, had a lot to give. So, um, you know, there's room for individual expression in that. And, and really, how can music live without that? Yeah. So, you know, yeah. And I'd just like to say on behalf of all of the audience members of the Brandenburg, you still all do have a lot to give us because it's, <laughs> it's exactly the experience that I personally have had and I know many other people have had in the concert hall. Thank you very much, Ben, for coming and speaking with me today. It's been a real privilege having you across the table. Yeah, thank you. No, Hugh, it's always a pleasure. It's really, yeah, it's great to talk about these things as well as, well as do them. So, yes, uh, yeah, wonderful.
The Brandenburg is proud of our long-standing relationship with principal partner Macquarie Group. Our partnership with Macquarie Group is built on a shared vision of infinite possibilities and a commitment to the very highest standards of excellence. The Brandenburg is also proud to be supported by APA Group, our presenting partner for the Bach series. Through our partnership with APA Group, we have the opportunity to connect Baroque music to audiences and communities throughout Australia.